Well, you're, I have a few announcements, but if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, that's going to be our scripture for today. Um, <clears throat> so a few announcements. Um, there's a connection card inside the program where it's also on our app. We are, if you search We Are Restore on your device, um, you can find our app, and we've got sermons on there we've got connection cards where you can be uh we've got our our bible reading plan that we do together throughout the year there's all kinds of good stuff on there you can store it out through the app so if you want to support restore financially you can do that through the app or online at wearerestore.com and we'd love to have your information um, via the hard copy connection card or through the app so that we can kind of keep everybody in the loop about upcoming opportunities some of those that we have right now uh, we have a women's Bible study that's currently happening every Wednesday night at our living room, and that is from 7.30 to 9 p.m. I think there's a couple more weeks of that. I know they're meeting this coming Wednesday night. And then uh, a couple things we're doing in December to celebrate the Christmas season that we thought would be really, really great. So there's, um, as you may or may not know, there's a, uh, a refugee ministry called City of Refuge that is meeting in the living room on a month in a month. <laughs> And they have a couple needs they've asked us about. One of those is they need coats. And I was just thinking uh, this week, like, I, I know I have a coat sitting in my closet that I have not worn. It's a ski coat, and it's in great condition. And I haven't worn it in, like, three years. And there's no point in me keeping that anymore. And so we're going to do a coat collection. Um, there's around 30 to 50 people uh, in need of that. So we're partnering with another church um, a Lutheran Church up on, on Georgia Avenue. They're collecting coats as well. Ooh, a question. Yes. Yes, we need kid and adults. And I asked for specific numbers. I didn't get them. So we will just, um, the way I think, you know, see it, like each of us, each person in our household has one coat that they no longer need that is in really good condition, if not more. Bring those. So we're going to collect those over the coming two weeks. And um, that's going to culminate on December 16th. We're going to have another dinner church gathering. So we did this back in October where we did a huge pitch-in dinner. We're going to send up a, send out a sign-up genius email with some different items to bring for food. We'll set up a huge buffet in the back. And this time around, we're going to do dinner church with City of Refuge. So they're going to be joining us. We're going to have a bilingual church service that day. Uh, we're going to celebrate Christmas in style with like two songs in Spanish, two in English. We're going to have some stories in Spanish, some stories in English. We're going to, there'll be some going on, but we just, I mean, this is a season where Christ came near to us and Lanice, who is the head of City of Refuge, and, and we sensed like it would be really great if we came near to one another in this season and just started crossing those relational bridges and see what God does with that. So December 16th, dinner church, and we're going to be collecting coats uh, until that point so that we can give those as kind of a Christmas gift uh, to those people who, you know, as we enter the winter season and, and need to stay warm. So be on the lookout for that. That's a, all that stuff. We need your emails if you don't have it. We want to be keep you in the loop about what's coming up. Um, we're starting a new series today called This Is Real Magic. And I kind of stole, so that's from this book I read a few months ago called Here Is Real Magic. It's written by a magician named Nate Staniforth. So that's one of the resources I'm going to be using this series, it's a really fun book, um, and I'm not even really into magic, but you'll read it, and you're like, I, I think I want to learn about magic. It's just a fascinating book. It's basically his story about how he became a magician, and I'm going to be quoting it uh, a few times throughout the next few weeks. Another couple of books that I would recommend, uh, we're going to be using some material from a book called Letters from a Skeptic. 
Uh, it's written by Dr. Greg Boyd. It's a book that uh, was written about 30 years ago, and it's a series of letters that, between him and his father. His father was an atheist, and so he asked his dad, hey, will you eat all the questions you have that make you a skeptic, that make you an atheist? And so he, they would write letters back and forth to one another. And his dad would ask these really hard spiritual questions, and Greg would answer them. And then they made it a book, and it's a great book. Um, and I read another, there's another book. Um, if, if you ever, if you're into learning about like humanism and atheism, there's a book called Philosophers Without Gods. It's meditation. It's a, it's a book of essays written by a lot of different atheists, which I like because you get a lot of different viewpoints. It's called Meditations on Atheism and the Secular Life. <clears throat> so those are some of the resources if you want to nerd out a little bit. Get audible.com and listen to some of those or read them in your spare time. Uh, oh, core, they're really fun. I'm going to be quoting from some of those. So yesterday, uh, I saw a quarter on my desk in my office. And I remembered months, two months ago when I read that book, Here's Real Magic, I told myself, I'm going to learn one magic trick to show my boys because I know they would like it. It's an easy dad thing to do to win them over. And then I forgot about it, you know, because that's what happens. You have parent brain. All right, we forget a lot, don't we? Can't even remember where we put our wallets and our keys, let alone how to learn a magic trick. But I saw a quarter on my desk. There was no football on that I was interested in. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn how to do this a magic trick. So I searched YouTube real quick, and I found an easy coin trick. It literally took five minutes for you to master it. Going out to eat. All right, I'm into this now. So I, I got this quarter, put it in my pocket, because we were going out to eat later in the day as a family. And I uh, went out to eat, put our food order in. And those of you who are parents know the time between the time after you put your order in at a restaurant and the time before it comes, you never know what's going to happen. All right. It could be it's usually um, like angry. You know, they're 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 like, why is the food not here right now? So if you're an expert parent like me and Carrie, you've learned to fill that void with conversation, games, entertainment. And so that's when I was like, going to bust out my magic trick. So I took the quarter out of my pocket and, I sh and sitting across from me was Ty and Sutter, my oldest and youngest. And I'm going all over to them and I'm like, do you guys want to see a magic trick? And they immediately started fidgeting and wriggling all over the place in excitement. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I'm going to make this coin disappear. And I handed it to them. I'm like, sure, make sure it's real. It's a real quarter. And they're inspecting it, totally pumped about what's going to happen. So I take it, and now this is like a 50-50 chance that I'm going to be able to pull this trick off. <laughs> I practiced it for five minutes, and I'm like, I don't know if this is going to go over. But I knew no matter what, even if it fails, they're going to laugh and make fun of me, and it still killed like six or seven minutes of time all right, before the food came. So it's a win-win situation. The fun part is Carrie had no idea that I was going to do this trick either, and she was giggling and laughing, pulled it off, and enjoying it as well. So... Um, I did the trick. I pulled it off. I nailed it. All right. And they had no idea where the coin went. And neither did she. She had, Carrie was like, where is it? I'm like, I, and literally I had no idea where it was. I didn't know where it went. I just knew that I pulled the trick off and I was like, I don't care where it's at. It's gone. <laughs> so it worked. And I got to say, it was really satisfying to pull off a, a magic trick for my kids and my wife um, because the reality of the trick actually exceeded the hype and that doesn't always happen a lot of times like the hype you get all hyped up for something and then the reality is like okay that wasn't that exciting but it was actually one of those few slight of the reality was better than that but it wasn't real magic it was just sleight of hand that's all it was 
and they fell for it, and it was fun. The season of Advent's about real magic. It is the complete opposite. It's, it's one of expectation, but it's not the kind of expectation um, that my family had for magic. There was no innocent, there's no innocence in Advent. Um, it's not just like a fun-loving type of moment or season. Um, with my trick, even if it failed, like I said, laughs would come. But first century Israel was a much different context than the Thomas family dinner table. Now, there were people that were expecting a Messiah hoping for and praying for the hype had grown piped thousands of years waiting for is this a pipe dream is god ever going to come and rescue us so i imagine it's a season of extreme frustration doubt desperation maybe even cynicism and anger um, will the messiah ever come for us how long are we going to be occupied and marginalized by foreign powers how long are we going to live in slavery? Does God even care? So I imagine it's a season where there's not much excitement. There's just utter desperation for something real magical to happen. And then it happened. Um, and it's not just the, the magic that they expected or hoped for, but it was a surprising Messiah. Human. It was a Messiah that reached beyond their expectations, reached beyond their limits of human rationality. It was surprising. And that's what real magic is. It's not something we could ever possibly comprehend. And so I want to begin our Advent season by reading uh, parts of the Christmas story. So in Luke chapter 1, if you'll join me, we're going to read the Christmas story. I'm going to read verses. I'm going to read Luke 1, 26 through 38, and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 2. <clears throat> so Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you, are, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born age called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. So let's skip ahead to Luke 2, and I'm going to start with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child to her first. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news 
that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts on whom appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. We'll stop there. That's the, that's the Christmas story that we've maybe probably heard dozens, if not hundreds of times. There are no sleight of hand coin tricks in that story. There's no grinning questions like, where did it go? How did you do that? Real magic, God becoming human in the form of Jesus, I think leads to really serious questions. Maybe not, you know, I, I think maybe then, and I think even more so now, 2,000 years later, I think it's a lot, maybe it's a lot easier for us to doubt the incarnation and the impact of that. Um, we maybe ask questions in our head or out loud that, how do we believe in this story? I mean, I just read just, you know, probably about half of the story, and it's filled with a lot of stuff, a lot of claims that on the surface level, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, we can think there, there are so many holes that we could poke in that story. How can addiction, like one of them, how can God be both heavenly and human? Isn't that a paradox? Isn't that a contradiction? Why would God come here as one of us? Like, why would he do that? Why would, if there is a God, why would he leave heaven to come here for us? Why would we be worth it? And why would he choose that method? Why would he become one of us in the form of Jesus? Why would God care enough about this small planet and, 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 the people in it in the grand scheme of this limitless universe does god even answer prayers you think about you read the entire old testament people are waiting and begging for this to happen but does god really answer prayers and if so what does that look like floor them plan over the coming december sundays of advent is to answer some of these questions or at least to explore them and see what we uncover and we're going to use a variety of sources we're going to use experience scripture stories prayer maybe more, because real magic deserves exploration. It, it, it begs us to go deeper. So let's begin with the incarnation. How do we possibly believe in this story that God became human? I think the most common argument I've read or seen in humanistic lectures, the negative answer to that question is that it's a paradox. God cannot be both heavenly and and human. That's not possible. You can't be in two places at once. Paradox. Yes, you can. He can be in two places at once. Yes, it is a paradox. And there are a lot of there's a lot of proof that this is possible. One such example, Greg Boyd cites in his book that I really liked because it's so simple and just proves the existence of paradoxes. He says, when it comes to the nature of light, physicists note that it can be proven that light has both wave and particle-like features. This is paradoxical. We have no way of conceiving how something could have both of these features simultaneously. But since the evidence for both features is incontrovertible, physicists assert that it is, in fact, true. So paradoxes exist, which lends itself to me to think philosophically, 
if paradoxes exist, then God can be both heavenly and human. And there's more, I think, proof to him being able to do that. But I often find that um, uh, I had an experience recently with uh, some religious fundamentalists. And these are the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're, they're, really, they're, they're really nice people. Um, but I don't have um, the same amount of certitude about things that they have. And I wonder if they ask the kind of hard questions that wander through, through my head. And I find that atheism and religious fundamentalism lack uh, or, or both contain this like scientific and philosophical naivety. They, they're both hesitant to, hesitant to acknowledge a human existence that is filled with nuance and paradox. They want everything to make sense in their framework and in their paradigm. And if it doesn't line up with that, then they either just don't talk about it or they ignore it. I don't know what the response is, but I want to know, like, how do you ignore that? Like, how do you reconcile something that doesn't fit within your paradigm? I feel like it's like two sides of a coin, like atheism is heads and religious, religious fundamentalism is tails. And that's the framework. And in each of these tribal, the ink, everything has to fit within that um, worldview. And the Christmas arrival, the incarnation of God, heavenly and human at the same time, that doesn't fit in either one of those. All right? it, it isn't sleight of hand. It's real magic that somehow aligns with physics and science and philosophy. And it's a paradox. And his name is Jesus Christ. And it's, I can't even, it's hard to wrap our heads around. It just is. But the universe shows us that kind of thing is possible. That's something we can actually put faith in. So moving on, why would God care enough to leave heaven to come to us? And in the big picture, earth is a very small and insignificant place. I mean, we, we have enough with all the not to know that we are just a dot in the cosmos. And then this dot is filled with all these smaller dots called people and trees and mountains and rivers and, and animals. And it's like, this is, it's, it's so small. Why would he care so much? Why would he leave heaven to come to earth? And I think we often make the mistake of thinking small equals insignificant. And it doesn't take long to poke holes in that theory. Uh, we can make a long list of the small that has made a huge impact in the world. Nuclear fission, vaccines, penicillin, tiny Things that have made massive impact. Spider-Man, Roto Baggins, like these are small <laughs> people that made a huge impact. Babies, all right. I think about the first time I saw my oldest son Tyson being cleaned off by the doctors and nurses under a little heating lamp. Something so small changed the way I love. Like it was instantaneous, and I couldn't. I, I, there's no going back. Like I love in a much deeper and different way from that moment on. So, and it's just a, it's just a little baby, so small and potentially insignificant, but it changed me. It, it, it lit something up inside of me that I can't explain. Small does not mean insignificant. And the season of Advent is one of death. See, really, prayers waiting to be answered. Why does he care about those? Does he, does he really care about our hopes and our prayers? If so, does he answer them? If he does, how does he answer these prayers? I mean, humanity was crying out for a just king. All right, the, the story of scripture is one of people who are oppressed and who are marginalized. And that still exists in our world. There are 
There are people groups, there are individuals that are constantly marginalized and pushed aside and forgotten. And there, just like in scripture, there are people that are crying out for a, a king that can be trusted. All right, they, that, it has, that it's just, a trusted father. And then Jesus came, and he came in a very small, about in seemingly insignificant way. He was born in a stable, and there was little awareness in the world about his birth. I mean, the story of the, the Magi is often shown as him, them coming in like two minutes after Jesus is born. That's like three years. Like, Jesus was like two or three years old when the Magi found him, right? The, the historical timeline. When he was born, there was not much going on. It was, and then the people that were told about it were shepherds. Like the social rejects that didn't have, I mean, they lived out on the fields. They did not associate with people. And that's who the angels found to tell, to, to deliver the first message. Like, hey, the Messiah is here. This long centuries awaited event has been, and they tell shepherds. So we see this in the Christmas story. Um, there's, there, small does not mean insignificant. And God cares about each one of us, each one of our hopes and our prayers. And as we learn in the, the, story, the Christmas story is that he will partner with us to make those prayers come true, just like he did with the shepherds, just like he did with uh, Mary and with Joseph. So there's a reality that God wants to lead us into, and he, oftentimes he will ask us to be partners in making that a reality. So that's one way God answers prayers. He does. And we, we get to experience the answer with him. There's another way he answers prayers. And this one's not as much fun. Um, and we see it throughout the New Testament. He answers prayers because he wants to disappoint us. He wants to use our prayers to deconstruct our shallowness, our selfishness, whatever is broken inside of us. He will use prayers to expose that. Sometimes disappointing us, not answering our prayers in the way that we would hope. Um, this leads us into the type of doubt and questioning about God and ourselves, Christ, the church, the world, on and on. It's, it's going to lead us to ask, to, to doubt and to be disappointed and ask really hard questions about our prayers and, and about these different parts of our existence. And the, the disappointments of seemingly unanswered prayers lead us, what they do is they lead us into the crucible of restoration. We start leaving behind a faith of shallow platitudes and like God is some genie in a sky, like ranting wishes. We start leaving that crap behind and actually getting real about faith and desperate and doubtful. And these doubts and disappointments will actually lead us into a rich faith that actually has depth to it. And a day like this awaits us all where we will be disappointed or God will not live up to our expectations. It's one of the many narratives in scripture. And I just thought of this. And I, honestly, it's true. I didn't like read the entire New Testament this week to make sure this was true. I think it's true. Jesus never, not one time that I can think of, did exactly what someone was expecting of him. I cannot think of a single instance in the New Testament where someone said, will you do this in this way and in this method? And he did exactly that. He always did it differently than what they expected. There's no magic in that, real magic. Um, you know, or there's no magic in God f doing something exactly the way we hoped it would go. Real magic is following a father and a king who is never quite how you imagined him to be. And there's a friend of me, I read in Nate Staniforth's book, 
um, the magician, that reminded me of this truth. But before I reveal it, there's a story behind his discovery. So as I said, he's a <clears throat> professional magician. The first half of the book, he talks about how he's just weary from showbiz travel, dealing with the crowd, the grind of the entertainment industry. He was absolutely fried, and it culminated one night in a performance where he, he actually nailed this trick, and the audience was going crazy and laughing and, and clapping, and he froze and just stood there, and he, his mind just went blank, and then he just walked off the stage, just completely walked out of the show halfway through. Got an angry letter, I think, from like the... I think I have a college... <laughs> He got like an angry laugh. He just walked off, just fried. I actually have a dream about doing that. That would be pretty fun. Like just walk off, um, just make everybody feel awkward. <clears throat> um, and he ended up traveling to India. He'd always had this dream about going to India, and he felt like it was a really magical place. So he traveled there, and he stayed there for months to kind of rediscover or try to rediscover his love of magic and his um, ability to wonder. And uh, one of the things on his list that he wanted to encounter was a snake charmer. And believe it or not, it's actually illegal in India. So it actually was not that easy for him to find one. He did, I think, months into the trip. Uh, another caveat to this, and it's tricky, is he has a deathly fear of snakes. So he wanted to see this, but he's frozen by them, absolutely terrified of snakes. But he conquered his fear, and he found the snake charmer. And he's telling the story that there's, there's two baskets, and he's sitting four feet from them. He was the closest person other than the snake charmer to the baskets. And this is how, this is part of how he describes the story. It says deliberately and carefully, the snake charmer <clears throat> took one hand from the flute and lifted the lid from each basket. At first, nothing. He continued to play. The basket sat open and dreadful and I stared waiting. And then with the unhurried confidence possessed only by the truly powerful the cobras rose up to take stock of their surroundings. They were enormous. Two cobras, each as thick as my arm, uncoiling themselves impossibly high until they stood two feet in the air, their heavy heads swaying almost imperceptibly to the music, like sunflowers in a failing breeze. One, flicker, one flicked her tongue and then slowly, deliberately turned her gaze in my direction. She saw me. I was transfixed with fear. Fear is very close to wonder. Wonder and fear are similar in the way they both temporarily defeat the ego and allow you the extraordinary experience of seeing the world there the confines of your own identity. Every day we wake up and choose the clothes we wear, the words we say, the actions we take. We try to control our world as much as possible. But wonder and fear destroy all of that. Wonder and fear defeat your ego. I love that line that he used. And Nate points out there are moments and there are occurrences when we will lose all sense of ego. His happened in the face of being four feet from two king cobras. For people who follow Christ and pray to him, he's using those moments to defeat your ego to defy your expectations. People will instruct you and then reconstruct you. And from my experience, people of privilege, and that might be most of us, if not all of us in this room, have a really hard time with the defeat of ego. We typically just want to leave in order to regain control. But the real magic happens 
when we stay and we wait for the reconstruction to begin. And there's more reasons, more ways that God answers prayers. There's, and um, we'll, talk, we'll probably talk about some of that next week <clears throat> along with other questions that we... That, you know, when we think about God actually becoming human, there are a lot of questions. We're not going to answer all of them, but we're going to at least spend a few run from that. In the meantime, will you linger in the magic of Advent? Will you run from the God who doesn't live up to your expectations, who doesn't answer your prayers the way you expected, the God who can't quite fit into your box of human rationale, or will you remain in the crucible of Christ, lingering in that tension? In that tension, I love Christmas. Um, the season begins for me on November 1st, the day after Halloween, to the dismay and the annoyance of my wife. Like, I'm cranking up Christmas music on the way to dropping my kids off at school the morning of November 1st. Never fails. She refuses to ride in the car on that day because it's not Christmas season to her. I'm buying eggnog into it. I'm already putting stuff on the Amazon wish list. I'm looking for presents for people. I really get into it. There's nothing wrong with that, but there is a much deeper opportunity with the Christmas season. And I read his quote uh, by author Gina Thomas yesterday. And I love the angle on Christmas. She says, rather than asking, what do you want for Christmas? My question to you is, what does your soul want? Ardently desire, long for, for this Advent season. That's what I want us to think on. Pray on. Discuss that with people that you're close to. Because God will answer that in some way and it probably won't be in the way you imagined.